Good morning to you all. Hope you're doing well. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Christian life is a life of faith. And the Bible talks about that in a lot of different ways. And it encourages us to believe the good news that life is hard and difficult, and yet God calls us to trust him in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, this results in all kinds of things in our lives if we do believe the good news. Results in us turning from sin. Results in us resting in Jesus for God's love for us. Results in, results in us hoping in God in light of all that he's promised us. Results in us pursuing love uh, to other people. And one of the things that we may not realize is that what we do every Sunday in worship, obviously, with regard to the singing and preaching, is meant to strengthen our faith. But there's a special thing that we do on Sundays that the Lord commanded that we do to remember him, which is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is something that God has given us to strengthen our faith. And so we want to look at that this morning because the latter part of 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 and following, talk about the Lord's Supper and encourage us to approach it rightly. Um, some of you may have noticed, if you watched the Super Bowl last Sunday, the ads for or the commercials about He Gets Us, which is reflected in that uh, picture there. It's actually something that's been going on for a while uh, through uh, the Internet and other media sources. And it's a campaign uh, that's supported by anonymous donors that is trying to communicate a message with regard to Jesus. And from what I've read that their concern is that people don't understand um, how Jesus understands where we are and understands our humanity because Jesus was human. And so if you look at the different commercials that they have, there are all kinds of different messages that they're trying to convey, such as Jesus didn't want us to act like adults or Jesus loved the people we hate Jesus was a refugee. Jesus was uh, welcomed all to the table. Jesus suffered anxiety too. And Jesus struggled to make ends meet too. So if you listen carefully to what they're trying to say, they're trying to say to people, uh, Jesus isn't someone that is against you. Jesus is someone that can identify with you. And therefore, uh, he has something to offer you. What doesn't come clear in the commercials is what he has to offer beyond saying, I understand what you're going through. And someone has commented, a lot of people could say that. I understand what you're going through. George Washington could say that, or Abraham Lincoln, or a lot of people could say, I understand what you're going through. But the question is, do, is there anything that anyone can do about it? Is there anyone that can actually address the issues that are overwhelming us in our lives. Is Jesus simply um, a buddy, a companion, or is he a savior? And that's one of the things that doesn't come true, or come through, rather, um, the commercials, is that he's a savior and that he's not only human, but he's God. And so the Lord's Supper, I believe, is one way God wants us to truly understand how Jesus gets us. And hopefully as we go through this, you'll see how 
that actually takes place. There are only two things, two uh, ordinances that uh, Jesus gave us to observe. One is baptism, which begins at the beginning of the Christian life, and the other is the Lord's Supper. And as it says in Acts chapter 2, those who believed the gospel were baptized, and then they devoted themselves to certain things like the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Well, as I read through 1 Corinthians 11, I, I wonder if the people in the church in Corinth were Baptists, like I grew up among. Because when I grew up in a little Baptist church in Louisiana, uh, Baptists were known for two things. They were known for uh, meeting and eating. If you're going to meet, you might as well eat. And they were also known for division and splitting off into other churches. And I've told the story a number of times about the guy who stranded on the desert island, and he finally flags down a ship that's passing by, and they come out to rescue him off this desert island, and they notice three huts, and they say, hey, what are those three huts you built? And he said, well, the first one is my house, the second one is my church, and that third one is the church I used to go to. Because even uh, as an individual on an island, Baptists are prone to split, even if there's nobody to split from. <laughs> it's just in our DNA that we're going to divide. We're going to uh, have some conflict. And unfortunately, that's more true than not. And we joke about it, but I, that, there's some reality behind the joke. That's why it's kind of funny, but not. And you actually see that dynamic in this passage. And I want us to see that dynamic because Paul is very concerned about how the vision in their church is translating into a dishonoring of the Lord's Supper. I was also reading this week about um, someone who was commenting on a letter from John Calvin to John Knox. And they were discussing this issue. And the guy that was blogging... uh, was copying down the letter, and he wrote um, in his blog, uh, John Calvin's letter, and he began Geneva, 7th November, 1559, um, and he goes on to say, if I answer your letter, most excellent bother. The uh, brother who wrote the blog post forgot the R in brother and said bother. And I thought about the fact that that's exactly what we see going on in 1 Corinthians 11. People are saying, hello, excellent bother, rather than excellent brother. There's real, there were real divisions in 1 Corinthians in the letter as it's reflected. Obviously in the church there, Paul is dealing with just how pervasive division in the body can be and how we can be bothered with each other in the body. And the question is, what unites us? It's not skin color. It's not vocation. It's not gender. It's not any of those things, but Christ. Christ is the one who unites us. And the Lord's Supper is meant to be something that expresses that profound unity. And so let's read this uh, latter part of 1 Corinthians 11 in light of those things. 
And we pray that the Lord will encourage us. So beginning in verse 17, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. This is the word of the Lord. And so I want to think about what Paul says to us here about the Lord's Supper. In the very first part of this passage, he starts with talking about the problems that are going on in the church there in Corinth with regard to how they're observing the Lord's Supper. There's a story that R.C. Sproul told uh, before he went to heaven about uh, a class he was teaching at one point on the Lord's Supper in seminary, I think. And someone raised the question, why do we have to use bread and wine? Why can't we use peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Coca-Cola? And he tells the story and he says, that made me so mad when that student said that. Made me want to kill him, is what he said. And he said, through clenched teeth, the reason why we don't use peanut butter, jelly sandwiches, and Coca-Cola is because Jesus never consecrated peanut butter, jelly sandwiches, and Coca-Cola. Now the question is, why would R.C. Sproul be so upset at such a suggestion? He said, because the Lord's Supper is very precious to me. And he was making light of it best. And at worst, 
he was profaning something very, very precious. And he said the preciousness was not in the bread or in the wine or the juice that we use. The preciousness is in what it exalts. It exalts the body and blood of Jesus because Jesus is precious and Jesus said, use bread and wine to honor me. To do anything different is to dishonor Jesus. It is to profane Jesus. It is to despise him. So he saw beyond the issue of what we're using or not to the fact that Jesus commanded us to do this that we might honor him in light of the preciousness of his body and his blood. And so I try to imitate what uh, R.C. Sproul said and did because that's what I think is going on right here with Paul in talking to the Corinthians. He says, this is what's happening, and I cannot praise you for that, which is an understatement. Um, He's saying what you guys are doing is horrendous. You are dishonoring the body and blood of Christ. And he says, you know what? If you're going to do it this way, the way you're doing it, it'd be better if you not even show up. It'd be better if you just didn't do it at all than to do it the way you're doing it. He says, "You're, you're coming together, you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, you're worshiping together, and it's for the worse not for the better. I don't know if if when you come to church, you're coming to church thinking, I'm going to church for the better. Sometimes we think it's for the worse because we'd rather sleep in, we'd rather do something different. But God has designed the worship of the body of Christ for the better, that we come to church to receive benefit, encouragement, strength, all that we really need for life every day. And it's not for the worse. And so Paul could say the way you're treating the Lord's Supper and treating each other in the observance of the Lord's Supper is something that exhibits the divisions among you. It shows just how divided you are, and it dishonors the Lord. And it is for the worse. It's interesting, um, in the Corinthian church, you have the beginnings of people um, not using the Lord's Supper, but abusing the Lord's Supper, and it's happened throughout history. In fact, uh, we as Protestants would say the Roman Catholic Church still abuses the Lord's Supper in various ways. For one thing, they don't allow uh, believers to have both the bread and the cup. They only get the bread. And Calvin and the other reformers said, that's wrong. You're maiming the Lord's Supper by not giving believers both the bread and the cup because Christ commanded that we receive both the bread and the cup. In Jonathan Edwards' day, um, there was something that they called the halfway covenant. And it was something that his grandfather actually encouraged as well as other people. And this halfway covenant was a a use of the Lord's Supper in which they saw it as a converting ordinance. That we should give it to people who uh, aren't even Christians because maybe God will use it to convert them. And yet... The reformers and others would say, and as we see in scripture, the Lord's Supper is a continuing uh, ordinance for believers, for those who've already expressed their faith in Christ, have trusted in Christ, and it is for the church. It's not for unbelievers. It's an abuse 
for it to be used in that way. And so Paul begins by saying, take seriously the fact that there is a right and wrong way to observe the Lord's Supper. And we need to be careful that we're doing it in the way that God calls us to do it. Which leads him to go from rebuking them to reminding them of what the Lord's Supper is truly all about. There's another uh, pastor, an English pastor named Charles Simeon, who before he was um, saved, he actually went to school at Cambridge. He didn't have a Christian family. There weren't any uh, true Christians there at Cambridge at the time. And yet they observed the Lord's Supper. They had worship and chapel and those kinds of things. And there was um, the provost there that told him after he got there at Cambridge, he said, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, you're going to have to partake of the Lord's Supper. Because that's what they did. And he was terrified. He was terrified because he knew that partaking of the Lord's Supper was dangerous if you weren't a Christian. It's interesting that that was his perspective. Now, I'm using his words. It was a dangerous thing to partake of the Lord's Supper unworthily, which reflects what we find here in 1 Corinthians 11. And so he began reading to try to find out how he could get prepared to partake of the Lord's Supper. And he actually partook of the Lord's Supper at one point, even though he didn't feel like he was ready, but he felt like he had to. But he kept reading and looking, and he read uh, someone who explained what it was all about. And the way this man explained it was, he said, uh, the Jews knew what they were doing when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. And he said, all of a sudden it hit him. He said, what? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. At that point, he was saved. And being concerned about being ready to partake of the Lord's Supper, he came to really understand what the Lord's Supper was really all about. It's about a Savior who allows us to transfer our sin to him, and he transfers his righteousness to us. And he said he partook of that Lord's Supper the next Sunday, which happened to be Easter Sunday. He had sweet, sweet fellowship with Jesus during that time. In verses 23 through 26, Paul talks about the proper observance of the Lord's Supper. He reminds us of what the Lord did on uh, the night that he was betrayed. He was celebrating the Passover, which we call the Last Supper, or the Last Passover. And it talks about the fact that Jesus said, uh, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And there's a number of different things. If you just think through all the different elements of just that very short paragraph, uh, Paul highlights some things about the Lord's Supper. Let me just list these for you very quickly. The Lord's Supper is a commanded celebration. Secondly, it is for sinners who are looking to Christ. Thirdly, it is a way of remembering Jesus and what he has done for us. Fourthly, it is an opportunity to give thanks to God 
for what Christ has done for us. The bread represents his body and life sacrificed for sinners. The wine represents his blood and death on behalf of sinners. He mentions the idea of a covenant so that the Lord's Supper is a kind of covenant renewal celebration where we remember the conditions of the covenant and the promises that God makes us in that covenant. It doesn't tell us how often we should do it. Some churches do it every Sunday like we do. Some churches do it every month or every three months. Uh, The Lord simply says, as often as you do it, make sure you do it properly. He goes on to talk about the fact that the bread and the cup are to be received. The supper is a proclamation of the gospel. When it says we proclaim his death, that's a shorthand for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And finally, he says that this bread represents my body, which is for you. The death of Christ was for us, and the Lord's Supper is for us. They're both for us. And the way that I benefit, or at least one way I can benefit from the death of Christ for me, is through the Lord's Supper, which is also for me and for you. And so Paul just gives a a little synopsis of what the Lord's Supper is all about, but is chock full of truth about it that we should keep in mind. Now, there's obviously all kinds of background behind this. Uh, The Lord, as I mentioned, celebrated a Passover meal when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And the Passover can be seen in the Old Testament. And if you recall, it's called the Passover meal because Israelites were rescued from Egypt And the last miracle that God did, a miracle of judgment on the Egyptians, was to kill the firstborn. But all those who took the blood of a lamb and put it around their doors, the death angel passed over them. They escaped the wrath of God. They escaped the judgment of God. And so the background for what Jesus said is the Passover. One of the most important questions, you could argue the most important question is, how can a sinner be right with a holy God? How could a just God, then second to that is, how could a just God not punish me for my sin? How could he pass over my sin? He he can't just sweep it under the rug if he's just, That's where the sacrifice of Christ comes in. That's why it's a Passover celebration. But there are other kinds of uh, celebrations that were also involved in the Old Testament. There was uh, peace offerings. You might recall, if you read through your Old Testament, they'll talk about peace offerings. And an important part of the peace offering was a meal. You were to have a meal. You were to offer a portion of your sacrifice on the altar. Then you were to sit down and eat. And it was a, a celebration of the peace that you had with God through sacrifice. And there are other places, where the, such as in Deuteronomy, where God says, You and your household shall eat before the Lord and rejoice. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God by eating this meal. And that's why we talk about celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's why we talk about rejoicing in the Lord's Supper. 
We also see in the Old Testament uh, covenant meals. As I said, Jesus highlights the fact that the Lord's Supper is an institution of the new covenant. What is that covenant all about? Well, in Jeremiah it says, I will be their God and they will be my people. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are saying, we are your people, and God is saying to us, and I, will, I am your God. That's what we're saying. We're reminding of our, ourselves of the conditions of the covenant, which are repentance and faith in Jesus, and we're reminding ourselves of the promises of the covenant, which are forgiveness of sins and eternal life and everything that God has promised us through the gospel. There's actually a covenant that was made um, between um, Isaac and some other people in the area. And they came and they made the covenant and they sat down and they ate a meal. And within that discussion, they said, this covenant is such that uh, by making our covenant together, uh, we will not harm you and you will not harm us. Can you think about that? Um, The covenant that we make with God through Christ is a covenant where God promises, I will not harm you. You will not reap my wrath. You will not, I will not mistreat you. And we offer ourselves up to God and pray for grace to honor him in the same way. In 1 Corinthians 10, just one chapter earlier, Paul is arguing that they flee idolatry. And he makes a comment about the fact that when pagans worship, they're not just doing something that has no spiritual significance. He says that when pagans worship idols, they are actually sacrificing to demons. And when they eat the food in those um, pagan rituals, they are communing, fellowshipping spiritually with demons. That there is a spiritual dynamic to that physical eating in the context of worship. And he says it's the same thing in the Lord's Supper. He says, is it not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in, a communion, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break, a sharing in the body of Christ? There's something really special going on here, even though we can't see it with our physical eyes. Jesus, in one of his uh, sermons in John 6, also highlights the importance of the Lord's Supper when he says, he says, you know what? If you don't eat my flesh, uh, you can't be saved. You can't have eternal life. And they ask the question, what is he talking about? To them, it sounded like cannibalism. What do you mean, eat my flesh? And Jesus says very clearly, truly, truly. And whenever he said truly, truly, he means listen up. This is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It goes on from there, and it says a lot of people just turned around and walked off. Because all they could imagine was was that Jesus was saying, you have to literally eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is that what Jesus was saying? No. 
But what he was saying, there is a spiritual eating and drinking of the body of Jesus, that if that is not a part of your life, because it's an act of faith, you will not have eternal life. And so he's talking about faith because he begins that section by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So it's a spiritual eating by faith. And it's important, it's crucial, and that's why Jesus uh, did what he did at the Last Supper. That's why he instituted uh, this Lord's Supper because it's a way through which we actually fellowship with him in light of who he is and what he's done for us. And one of the things that's important when we think about what's happening in the church in Corinth, Paul says, I'm not going to praise you for how you're you're observing or failing to observe the Lord's Supper because you're mistreating each other. Uh, Evidently, people were getting there uh, early and they were beginning to eat. They, They evidently had a meal that went along with the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper was observed in the context of a larger meal. People were getting there early, and and probably the richer people. You had the slaves and others that were coming in later. And people were getting there, and they were just eating their fill and drinking their fill. And some some people were getting drunk, and they were just stuffing themselves, and they didn't care whether there was any food or drink left for anybody else. They weren't loving each other, and they didn't care to celebrate the supper in a way that emphasized their unity. It was all very self-centered and selfish. Well, on the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he also said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And so you cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper appropriately and not love the body of Christ. You can't celebrate the body of Christ in the supper by not loving the body of Christ in the church. That's what Paul is talking about here is the way you guys are treating each other is dishonoring Christ, is dishonoring the Lord's Supper, is dishonoring the body of Christ, which is the church. One other thing that's a background for all of this is it says in Revelation that there's a future marriage supper of the Lamb. It tells us that uh, we should rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who, who are those people invited? Those who are now partaking of the Lord's Supper. It says we have something to look forward to. Something that's much, much better than what we're receiving here because it is the full blessing of all that God has promised us in Christ. Well, through history there's been all kinds of ideas about what the Lord's Supper is really about. The Roman Catholic Church says that when you pray over the elements, they turn into the literal body of Christ and blood of Christ. Uh, The Lutheran said, no, they don't turn into the literal body and blood of Christ, but the literal body and blood of Christ is all around them, with them. Then you've got, uh, in the Zwinglian tradition, those who would say, no, the literal body and blood of Christ is not um, not transformed into that. It's not all around it. It's simply a reminder. It's a memorial. Uh, God's uh, presence of Christ is not there in that sense. It's just a reminder of what he's done for us. It's 
Jesus said, remember me when you eat this supper, and that's all we're doing. We're just remembering Jesus, and it's helpful to our faith to remember. Then there are those like John Calvin who would say, it's, it is a remembrance because Christ said, remember me. It is a kind of memorial. So it's not less than that, but it's so much more than that. It's a feeding upon Christ, which is what John 6 says. There's something spiritual going on because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a fellowship, there's a communion, there's a sharing in the blood of Christ, a sharing in the body of Christ. There's a spiritual dynamic going on that is more than just remembering Christ. And so it's important for us to realize that. And let me just kind of summarize um, what Paul is getting at. When we think about the Lord's Supper, it is a sign. That sign there says exit. It's pointing to that is the way out. The Lord's Supper is a sign. It points to Christ and what he did for us. It's also a seal. Uh, if I went around and put a stamp on your forehead that said Coast member, then that, that stamp would be a seal. It would mark you as a member of Coast. The Lord's Supper marks us as believers in Jesus. Because we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we are marked as people who are trusting in what he's done on the cross. But it's also a means of grace. It's a means of spiritual nourishment. That's why it's pictured as food and drink. But it's spiritual nourishment for us. But finally, it's it's a table. And in the best of situations, it's not a table at which you sit by yourself. It's a table that's full of other people. So that we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper by ourselves in our closet. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a corporate meal where we sit down at the Lord's table together and it reminds us of what unifies us. Because the reality is, all the Corinthians could think of was what divided them. That's where we are in our country right now, focusing on what divides us. The only thing that can truly unite us as sinners is Christ and what he's done for us. And so the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to keep these things in mind, to say thank you to God for what he's done for us. It's an opportunity to be spiritually strengthened. It's an opportunity to proclaim what we believe and what the gospel is. Well, let me move on to the next section where Paul talks about the punishment for improper observance of the Lord's Supper. And I use the term punishment because he uses very strong language. But punishment can be of two kinds, right? It can be a punishment that is giving us what we deserve. And then there's a punishment that we can talk about as parents. I'm going to have to punish you for that, which means I'm going to have to discipline you that, which doesn't mean I'm going to get you back. It doesn't mean I'm going to give you what you deserve. It means I'm going to help correct you for your own good. And so uh, Paul talks about that uh, in this next section in verses 27 through 32. Again, it's interesting to me when I think about how people have thought about the Lord's Supper and have responded to the reality that they saw, or at least they were told, was in the Lord's Supper. Another one besides Charles Charles Simeon or R.C. Sproul is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, before he became a Christian, he was a monk. 
He was trained as a priest. And one day he had to give his first Roman Catholic mass. And in the mass, the priest would say the words of consecration over the bread and the wine. And according to Roman Catholic teaching, at that very point, when the words of consecration are spoken, that's when a miracle happens. And the miracle is that bread that still looks like bread is no longer bread, but it's really the literal body of Jesus. And that wine that still looks like wine is not wine anymore, but it's the literal blood of Jesus. And so Martin Luther, who was at a place where God was already at work in his heart, convicting him of sin, and he was wrestling with, what am I going to do about my sin? Understood that he was a sinner, and he was terribly frightened of the wrath of God. And he did not at that point understand that Christ was given for sinners and that he could be saved. So he was still in this place of being very, very aware of his sin. And he realized the implications of a sinner touching the holy lamb of God. And he was terrified. And he got up to try to say the words of consecration and he froze. And he couldn't get the words out of his mouth. And his parents were there and everybody was there waiting for uh, Luther, who who was very eloquent and was one of their best students. And they thought this is going to be a great mass because Luther's a great guy. And he couldn't even speak. And his father was embarrassed and people didn't know what to do because he just kind of stood there just frozen with terror. Well, finally, he was able to get out enough to mumble what he was supposed to say and to rush through the rest of the Mass. And he ran off. And he said that people asked him if he forgot his lines. He said, no, I didn't forget my lines. I just realized that my filthy hands were going to touch the precious blood and body of Christ. And I was overcome with unworthiness. Overcome with unworthiness. Well, that's exactly what Paul talks about in this section, beginning in verse 27. He talks about unworthiness. He says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. I'm sure uh, Luther had read that. And knew that. And it scared him to death. Paul says, in light of the issue of partaking in an unworthy manner, a man must examine himself. Because if he eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, he drinks judgment to himself. Then he goes on to make an amazing statement. He says... This is why many of you are sick or weak and some have died. That's an amazing statement. That's a shocking statement. And so he says, he goes on from there, but he says, but when we are judged, 
He says, judge yourself so you're not judged. But when we are judged as true believers, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so we really need to think about what he's saying here and what's going on here. So let me just do it this way uh, by asking a few questions and trying to summarize it as quickly as I can, as clearly as I can. In light of what Paul says here, in light of what the scripture says, who should not partake of the Lord's Supper? Two kinds of people. The first kind of person who should not partake of the Lord's Supper is someone who doesn't even claim to be a Christian. It's not a converting ordinance. So if you're not a Christian, don't claim to be a Christian, don't claim to be trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you should not partake of the Lord's Supper. But you can claim to be a Christian and still you should not partake of the Lord's Supper. Obviously, um, in the church in Corinth, being a sizable church, uh, there are more than likely people there that proclaim, profess to be Christians but really weren't, and true Christians. And the implication is that all of them have were caught up in this uh, dishonoring of the Lord's Supper. And so if you claim to be a Christian, when shouldn't you partake of the Lord's Supper? And I would say this very carefully. If you clearly reject the essential doctrines of the gospel, there are Episcopal priests who claim to be Christians but deny the virgin birth, deny the resurrection. I would say even if you claim to be a Christian but you deny those essential doctrines, you should not partake. If you hold... um, truly heretical views or don't hold to the essentials of the gospel, then you should not partake even if you claim to be a Christian. Secondly, if I clearly refuse to love and live as the word of God commands. Now when I say clearly, I'm using that term carefully because there are some things that we know that are just clearly incompatible with being a Christian. In our day and time, there are those who want to say that you can be an LGBTQ Christian. That is clearly not biblical. Paul says very clearly that if you embrace that lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so someone who says, I'm a Christian, but embraces that lifestyle should not partake of the Lord's Supper because they are embracing a lifestyle that the Bible clearly says that you cannot be confident that you're a Christian if you embrace that lifestyle. Well, then who should partake of the Lord's Supper? If you claim to be a Christian and you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should take the Lord's Supper even if you struggle to believe all that you need to believe. Even if you struggle to love like you should love even if you lack assurance. So I hope you're listening carefully to the distinction I'm making here. I'm not saying if you feel like you're a sinner, you shouldn't partake. I'm saying if you feel like you're a sinner, but you don't want to be, and you're trusting Jesus to help you in every way you need to be helped, then yes, you need to take the Lord's Supper. You should 
take the Lord's Supper. It's those who reject what Christ says is true and who refuse to deal with their sin and and live in any way, shape, or form that is like what Christ calls us to live. That's where the Bible says, no. No, the supper isn't for those who reject Christ and reject the Christian life. But it's not for us to be too scrupulous. You know, I shouldn't protect the Lord's Supper because I got upset at my kids on the way to church this morning. Or because, you know, I have this um, sin issue that I've been dealing with for 10 years and I keep failing. Just can't protect the Lord's Supper until I get that conquered, right? Wrong. If the Lord's Supper is truly a means of grace, that's exactly what you need to grow in your love for your kids or grow in uh, overcoming sin. It's part of the fight of sin. And we have to be careful of being legalists with regard to the Lord's Supper. I have to be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. No, you don't. No, you don't. All you have to be is repentant, which means that I don't want to continue doing what I'm doing. And I believe that Jesus is the key to me ever making progress and becoming more like I should be to the glory of God. And so maybe there's some fine distinctions that we need to make, yes. But let us never get to the point that we think that because I feel like I'm such a sinner today, I can't partake. Now, if you feel that way, you are prime and ready to partake of the Lord's Supper if you feel like such a sinner. Calvin says it this way, if you would wish to use aright the benefit afforded by Christ, bring faith and repentance. So he says there are two things that are required to properly observe the Lord's Supper, faith and repentance. As to these two things, therefore, the trial must be made. If you would come duly prepared, under repentance, I include love. That's why I like to say trust and love. It is not a perfect faith or repentance that is required. As some, by urging beyond due bounds a perfection that can nowhere be found, would shut out forever from the supper every individual of mankind. So he says there are some people that talk about the supper in a way and about the issue of partaking unworthily that you basically exclude everybody. And he says that's a bad thing to do. That's not the way we should think about the supper or talk about the supper. If, however, you aspire after the righteousness of God, you really want to be pleasing to God with the earnest desire of your mind and and humbled under a view of the misery, if you wholly lean upon Christ's grace and rest upon it, know that you are a worthy guest to approach that table. For faith, when it is but begun, makes those worthy who were unworthy. Christ is worthy. Through faith in his worthiness, we are worthy to partake of the supper and to fellowship with him. We're not made worthy by being good enough, by having our quiet times, by making sure we don't do anything bad on the way to church or anything like that. One just one brief comment, though, about the whole issue of being disciplined by the Lord. Um, do you have a category as a Christian for being judged by God 
but not condemned by God. Because that's exactly what Paul says. When he talks about the fact that there are people that are eating of the Lord's Supper and doing so in a way that they're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, I believe he has two groups in mind. Those who aren't truly Christians and those who are truly Christians. And that both can be guilty in terms of how they're approaching the Lord's Supper inappropriately. So for some, the sickness and the death, if they're not even Christians, the judgment of God would be the kind of punishment that is a just punishment. But for true believers who are not thinking rightly and acting rightly toward other believers and they're not um, honoring the Lord and the Lord's Supper as they should be, for them, it's not justice, it's the discipline of a father. Because he says, in those cases, God does what he does that you won't be condemned, which means the judgment of God for believers is not condemnation. It's discipline that you might be corrected, that you might um, realize that you're seriously mishandling this precious means of grace. And it's God's loving kindness to you to help you see that that needs to change. And so just like parents spank their children out of love, they don't abuse them, but they do correct them and discipline them. So the Father, our Father, will do the same. Well, let me wrap up with, lastly, the practical considerations. Um, in the last two verses. It's interesting to me, somebody was writing about the fact that um, when you go home today and you eat your lunch, you should remember that your nourishment is the result of a sacrifice. It's either the death of a plant or the death of an animal. Unless it's tofu, and I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> so... But one way or the other, it's, it's your nourishment flows from a sacrifice. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a nourishment to us spiritually that flows from the sacrifice of Christ. And, and so it's important how we honor the Lord in the Lord's Supper in light of what it is all about. And yet there are some there is some flexibility with regard to this. If you notice in the last two verses, he simply says, so then. He's rebuked them. He's reminded them of what the supper is all about. He's warned them of what the consequences could be if you dishonor the Lord in the Lord's Supper. Then he says, so then, when you come together to eat, wait on each other. It's a very practical thing. Wait till everybody gets there before you start eating. He's saying, Take all this truth that I've told you and funnel it into waiting on each other. It's amazing how just a little thing can have a whole lot of truth behind it. Just wait for each other. But then he says, secondly, don't come hungry. Why? Because you're going to be tempted to eat more than you should and be greedy and not want to share. And so he says, Eat at home. Don't come hungry. So think about that. He's talking about all these serious, major 
theological things and practical warnings. And then he says two very, very unprofound things. Wait and don't come hungry. We can say a lot through very simple actions. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're saying something profound through a very simple action. He also says, uh, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come, which means he doesn't tell us everything that he told the Corinthians, which means we must not need to know it. And there must be some flexibility with regard to how churches um, order their observance, how often they do it, and what that looks like. Well, let me just remind us of the kinds of things that we need to remember. So when it says, when we get together to remember Jesus and the Lord's Supper, what are we remembering? We are remembering his life and death and resurrection. We are remembering that we are forgiven. We are remembering that we will inherit the kingdom of God. We are remembering that God loves us. We are remembering that he is with us. What am I doing when I partake of the Lord's Supper? First of all, I'm remembering all those things. Secondly, I am feeding on Christ. I am reaffirming my faith. I am renewing my commitment to love. I am proclaiming the gospel visibly. I am affirming my unity with all of you, with the body of Christ. So when the the uh, Lord's Supper is properly observed. It is a fellowship with Christ, and it's not just an empty ceremony at all. So let me bring us back to where we started. How does Jesus get us? He doesn't get us in the way that's portrayed in the commercials, but he does get us in the sense that he's God and he created us. So he knows a little bit about us. He created us to be holy and happy. Secondly, he gets us because he understands the depths of our sin, the forgiveness we need, the righteousness we need, and he actually provided what we need. You get people when you know what they need and you actually provide it. He gets us because he understands what it's like to be tempted. And he knows how to help us to trust and love in a fallen world. He gets us because he understands what our desires are. Every one of us in here desires to be fully and completely loved. Every one of us in here desires to be fully and completely happy and forever happy. He gets that. And that's why he came. That we might be loved fully and forever. That we might be fully and forever happy. He gets us. That's why he did what he did on the cross but the only ones who benefit from all of that are, are those who could say, Jesus gets me. The question isn't simply, does Jesus get us? The question is, does Jesus get me? Does Jesus get us in terms of surrender? Because the Bible says the only way we can benefit from what Christ has done is through faith. Through faith in who? Faith in Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's Savior and he's Lord. He's God. You trust him as your Savior. You trust him as your Lord. You trust him as God. You trust all that he promises. And you get all that he promises because 
you've given yourself to him. And we need not be afraid of doing that in light of our sin. I'll close with this. There was an article that was written. uh, It was kind of a fictional letter to a girl that is detransitioning. A transition from a girl to a boy and now realizes that was a big mistake and wants to transition back to a girl, I think is the context. And so this is part of that letter in applying the gospel to someone in that kind of circumstance. He says, we have to begin with the recognition that here is, there is no sin that is outside the reach of Christ's love. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So he's acknowledging the fact that to do that sort of thing, to think that sort of thing is a sin. And we can feel very guilty about doing something that we realize we should not have ever done. He goes on, one of the temptations that comes to those who are seriously repenting is that they overshoot. In recognizing that their sin went far beyond the boundaries of God's law, they assume falsely that their sin also went beyond, far beyond the reach of God's grace. But God's grace does not live snugly in a little heavenly bungalow. God's grace is a ranger, lives out in the badlands, and rounds up outlaws. God's grace is a bounty hunter. But then after he has apprehended the fugitive and brings him in, he surprises everyone by calling for the best robe, a fine ring, good shoes, and he orders that the fatted calf be killed. Then he tells the head servant to go hire a swing band. So your sin, however great it was, is no match for the kindness of God. This is something you need to fix in your mind now, and you need to make a point of hanging on to it. In Christ, God saves sinners. So the good news is that Jesus Christ died for sinners, And you qualify. How do we hang on to that? We partake of the Lord's Supper is one very important way we hang on to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would strengthen our faith. And by your grace, help us to truly celebrate you and what you've done for us in this Lord's Supper that we are about to partake of. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored in our celebration of what you've done for us. We thank you that your kindness and your mercy to us in Jesus is so great that no sin is a match for it, a match to it. Your grace is greater than our sin. Father, please be with us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper And we pray that you would be honored and glorified and that the gospel will be exalted. The good news of Christ will be exalted through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.